Welcome back to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia, and delighted to have you with us on our second episode. If you missed episode one, throw it in your queue, because my conversation with Spencer Glennon of Probable Futures was eye-opening for me, and we've gotten a lot of great feedback on it. If you're a return visitor, welcome back, and the green light means go. But first, let's set some ground rules for this podcast. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast. But all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Now back to the show, and here we go. We're going to kick things off with our news section that we call Newsworthy. I'll share a few recent headlines from the world of green investing with a little context on what it means and why it matters to investors. California officials have filed a statewide lawsuit against Walmart alleging that the company illegally disposed of hazard wasted landfills across the state for the past six years. The lawsuit, filed on December 20th by California Attorney General Rob Bonta and 12 California district attorneys, alleges that the retail giant illegally dumped nearly 160,000 pounds of hazardous waste or more than 1 million items, including alkaline and lithium batteries, insect killer sprays, aerosol cans, toxic cleaning supplies, and LED light bulbs, among other hazardous materials. The lawsuit also alleges that Walmart dumped confidential customer information at these landfills. Walmart denies the accusations and says it will fight the lawsuit. But this is not the first time the retail giant has been charged by California regulators over illegal dumping. In 2010, Walmart paid more than $25 million to settle dumping allegations brought by the state. And then in 2013, Walmart pleaded guilty in cases filed by federal prosecutors in Los Angeles and San Francisco to six counts of violating the Clean Water Act by illegally handling and disposing of hazardous materials at its retail stores across the United States. Walmart paid an $85 million fine for that. Since 2000, Walmart has paid more than $135 million for over 89 different environmental-related offenses, according to Good Jobs First. Walmart generated over $550 billion in revenue in 2020. Now, Walmart has a median percentile of 51.4 among its retail peers on environmental issues, according to Bloomberg Intelligence. Target is near the top of that group with 86.1, while Costco has a percentile reading of 29.2. The 0 to 100 rating with 100 being the most environmentally friendly, is based on indicators including greenhouse gas emissions, waste management, and sourcing in supply chains, according to Bloomberg. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency tightened fuel mileage rules on new cars and light-dirty trucks earlier this week, rolling back a Trump-era policy and signaling how the Biden administration may end up cutting emissions while its effort to pass a climate bill stalls in Congress. The new rule will require automakers to achieve an average of at least 55 miles per gallon fleet-wide by 2026. That's up from the 32 miles per gallon required by the Trump administration in 2020 and slightly higher than the original goal of 38 miles per gallon put forward by the Biden administration. The EPA standards, which apply to model years 2023 to 2026, are projected to avert more than 3 billion tons of emissions. That's equivalent to the majority of nationwide carbon dioxide emissions in the year 2019 between now and 2050. Greenhouse gas emissions from transportation of all kinds comprise about 28% of emissions nationwide, making those the biggest emitter of any single sector. 
The rule is likely a precursor to more aggressive regulations aimed at decarbonizing the U.S. auto fleet by the mid-2030s. Ford and GM, the largest automakers in the U.S., have already both pledged to have all-electric fleets by 2035. Shares of Ford are up more than 120% year-to-date, while shares of GM are up about 35%, and shares of Tesla are up about 26%. On the regulatory front, keep an eye out in early 2022 for movement on the Department of Labor's new proposed rule that should make it easier for employees to offer more ESG investing options in their workplace retirement plans. If the rule is finalized, more investment managers may consider ESG risks as part of the effort to maximize long-term risk-adjusted returns. Participants should also have more opportunity to pick funds with ESG mandates. Meanwhile, the SEC began its efforts to update reporting requirements for issuers to consistently disclose comparable and reliable information on climate change. The SEC may request explanations of any differences between a company's SEC filings and its corporate social responsibility or ESG report. Over time, this may lead public companies to expand the scope of their SEC filings, which could be a big win for ESG investors who rely on these public disclosures to choose their investments. It's time to play Follow the Flows. This is the part of the podcast where we check in on where the money has been flowing in ESG, SRI, and impact investments. Global sustainable fund assets almost doubled from the end of March to the end of September, according to Morningstar, totaling some $3.9 trillion. Most of that growth came from Europe, and here's why. New environmental, social, and governance language was added to fund prospectuses following the introduction of the EU Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation in March. That's SF. DR for short, and we'll probably be hearing a lot more about it. In the third quarter, Europe accounted for 77% of the quarter's net inflows, while the United States accounted for 11%. Flows in the rest of the world clocked in at $17 billion for Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Asia combined. 270 new sustainable funds were launched globally in the third quarter, and asset managers also continued to repurpose and rebrand conventional products into sustainable offerings. In the U.S., flows into ESG funds hit 54 $4.7 billion at the end of the third quarter, beating the total haul of $51 billion for the entire year of 2020, according to Morningstar. Which sustainable funds took in the most money? Well, here's the top five. The iShares ESG Aware MSCI USA ETF took in $3.3 billion. The Parnassus Core Equity Investor Fund took in $982 million. The iShares ESG Aware MSCI Emerging Markets ETF took in $833 million, while Vanguard's FTSE Social Index 1 took in $740 million and the Brown Advisory Sustainable Growth One Fund took in $476 million. Equity funds make up the lion's share of these flows as they typically do. In the third quarter, according to Morningstar, equity funds attracted $13 billion or 83% of all sustainable fund flows. Where's the money flowing in the bond market? Well, corporations and governments globally have sold a record $369.7 billion in green bonds so far this year. That compares to $234 billion raised in all of 2020, according to Bloomberg. What's a green bond? Well, I looked it up on Investopedia. And a green bond is a type of fixed income instrument that is specifically earmarked to raise money for climate and environmental projects. These bonds are typically asset-linked and backed by the issuing's entity balance sheet, so they usually carry the same credit rating as their issuers' other debt obligations. They may come with tax incentives to enhance their attractiveness to investors. The World Bank is a major issuer of green bonds. It's issued 164 such bonds since 2008 worth more than $14.4 billion. 
billion. In 2020, the total issuance of green bonds was worth almost $270 billion, according to the Climate Bond Initiative. The cumulative issuance since 2015 is over $1 trillion. You know who's getting into the green bond game? Walmart. That's right. The retail giant is looking to sell more sustainable debt amid pressure for the retail industry to reduce its carbon emissions. Walmart made its debut in the green bond market earlier this fall with a $2 billion offering, the largest ever from a U.S. corporation. It's hard to put a real number on the size of the problem created by climate change, but if you look at the amount of money the world's banks, insurance companies, and asset managers currently have tied up in the fossil fuel industry, it comes to a staggering $22 trillion. That's according to Moody's, and more than half of that is in outstanding bank loans. That's a lot of risk, and that's a lot of investment underneath global capital markets. And the problem has many sides to it. Fossil fuel companies are major contributors to climate change on the one hand, but their assets and investments are also at major risk, and the investment risk they pose to investors is also massive. How this dynamic plays out is the question of the next decade, and David Callaway, our guest this week, has been studying this closely. He's the founder and creator of the Callaway Climate Insights newsletter and Substack, and a business journalist and executive I've admired for a very long time. Welcome to The Green Investor, David. Great to be here, Caleb. Thanks for having me. David, you're a business journalist. You're a news executive. You've had stints as the president of thestreet.com. You're the editor-in-chief of USA Today. What led you to covering climate change and the creation of your newsletter? Well, Caleb, I've always been interested in climate change. I've always been interested in kind of extreme weather and environmental extremism, that type of stuff. In my various editing positions, reporting positions, we did projects around it and stuff that I thought were fascinating. But I came to notice about five or six years ago that the media just wasn't really doing a great job of covering climate change. We couldn't get past collectively you know, the dispute over whether it existed or not, the political dispute. So after we sold my last company, I started to look at uh, something, you know, what did I want to do next? And running another big company or being involved in another big M&A deal, it just didn't seem as exciting anymore. But I was interested in this climate thing. And I thought, let's just assume that climate change is going to happen, no matter whose fault it is. And let's cover the business of adapting and the business of what they call mitigation of climate change. Because it's already here. You've seen the disasters that we've had, the cold snap in Texas, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the wildfires. It's already here. How are we going to deal with it? And there's a business growing around that. And it's called, you know, it has that phrase ESG, environmental, social and governance, kind of wrapped into everything. But not a lot of folks were covering it in that way. So I started Callaway Climate Insights kind of right around the time COVID hit in 2020. You know, I thought this is this is the perfect time to like really get into this subject while everyone's locked down and uh, and start a little business. And it's been fascinating. I mean, in the last 18 months, I've developed a whole new universe of sources and experts and people that I do business with. It's been, you know, all from the, uh, you know, my beautiful world headquarters here outside of San Francisco. Like any good business journalist, David, you follow the money and the money's been pouring into ESG SRI, climate tech, climate finance over the past decade, but it's still so misunderstood by investors. What are the biggest misconceptions most investors have about these themes? One of the biggest things you kind of hit on in your intro, you know, one of the biggest things is that if we just stopped producing oil and 
producing coal, you know, and using, using them to make electricity, that everything would be better. And you hit it right on the head. There's $22 trillion in assets, in, in fossil fuel assets in the world's banks and insurance companies and uh, outstanding loans uh, in, in fund management companies. You can't just shut that off. A $22 trillion hole in the world economy would blow things up a lot more than COVID certainly has. So I think that's one of the misconceptions that this is just an easy fix, right? If only we could convince the evil fossil fuel executives to just stop or convince the evil banks not to invest in them. That's one of the biggest misconceptions. And we see it over and over again at these giant climate summits, like the one we had recently in Glasgow, where everyone's outside protesting. It's going to be much trickier, Caleb. They call it a a fossil fuel transition for a reason. You know, we have to make move fast because of the dangers of climate change, but not fast enough that we're going to upend the world's economy with with this transition to renewable energy. Renewable energy costs are generally coming down. Fossil fuel costs are going up. At some point, economics takes over and we will have a transition, but we have to make sure it happens cleanly. The other big misconception I think, Caleb, that people have is that by just investing in an ESG fund or an ESG exchange traded fund, that they are contributing to cleaning up the world from climate change, right? These funds are marketed products. There's hundreds of them, maybe thousands. Mutual fund managers are not stupid people. They've sensed the world moving into this direction and they've adapted by introducing new products to sell to us. And so all these products are different, how they look at green finance, how they look at climate change, whether they're even focused on climate change. I mean, many of these funds have oil companies in them. Each fund director, each marketing director can make their own argument over why Amazon should be in that fund or why Exxon should be in that fund or why the car companies, you know, the major polluters should be in the fund. So investors need to really be careful. They need to establish what they want to achieve. Do they want to make money? Okay. These funds have done pretty well. Do they want to save the world and clean up climate change? You're going to have to look a little harder to find funds that uh, that are really hit all those boxes. Right. Well, there's been a big backlash of late against ESG and some of the firms that create those ratings for stocks. There are some accusations of greenwashing or some of the ESG ratings are really only about the company's bottom line, not about the contribution they're making to reducing climate change. This is bubbling up right now, and you would expect that in this industry, which is, again, going through that evolution, not revolution. But what's missing in the conversation, David, about ESG? Is it about that impact or is it about what companies can get away with? What do you feel like we need to have in place there? You know, I I think... What we really, you mentioned a couple of previous iterations of ESG in your introduction, SRI, for instance, socially responsible investing, right? These acronyms change over time. And the reason they do is because they're all poor acronyms for for what we're talking about. And ESG may be the poorest of all. I mean, think about it. Environmental, all right, that's something that has to do with the environment. Social, that can be anything. That can be you know, anything from smoking cigarettes to wearing masks in public. You know, governance is generally kind of defined as corporate governance. That's, uh, you know, diversity in the boardroom and in your executive ranks, pay, equal pay. You know, almost anything lumps into this ESG box. And the confusion 
that comes from that is inevitable, as you said. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon, introduced their own funds, their own investment products. Nobody knows what they really are. So one of the things that has to change is we need a tighter definition of what investors are looking to do. And in general, when people that are investing in ESG funds are mostly looking for to have some sort of environmental impact and to contribute to that. So, you know, I foresee as this matures, the fund industry swings like a pendulum. Everybody jumps in and then the backlash happens. The funds start, you know, not selling as well. And they're going to start to come out with more focused funds, which will have hopefully better descriptive names of what these funds do. And the ones that I think, you know, focus on the entrepreneur's who are coming up with ideas to clean up the world from taking plastics out of the ocean to carbon out of the air to sustainable fashion. These are the kind of companies that are going to drive the sales of these more focused funds in the future. And that's what investors will be looking for. Because right now, most ESG funds are simply fang stocks under another description. Right. We were saying in episode one that some of the top 10 holdings look a lot like the NASDAQ 100 or look a lot like the S&P 500 with the biggest companies in the world. And you know why the returns are good? Because they've been following the whales. What do you make of the massive multi-trillion dollar asset managers like BlackRock and their ESG and sustainability commitments? We know that's been a big deal, especially for Larry Fink, the chairman and CEO of BlackRock, but you see other firms doing it too. Again, that is going to where the money is or where they think young money wants to go But when they make a commitment the size or the scale of a BlackRock or another company like that, does it mean as much as it sounds like? I've covered these guys for a long time, these fund managers. And and, and maybe it's because I'm close to them and you know them too, but I don't look upon them as just evil, money-grubbing people. Some of them, maybe. But I take Larry Fink for his word when he says, you know, we need to do something. And, And I think... Part of that is driven from what we just discussed from a you know, desire to launch new investment products and bring in new customers and prepare a new generation of customers. A lot of it, I think, comes from concern about risk. And, you know, BlackRock is arguably the biggest asset holder in the world. Maybe the Norway oil fund is bigger, but uh, they carry a lot of risk in some of these companies that they're holding. And they take a lot of abuse for it because they're passive fund managers in many cases. And so they own everything, which includes the fossil fuel companies. But I take them at their word. And, and I, when I see that they go in there and they actually have negotiations and discussions with some of their holdings and try to influence proxy votes and stuff, I think that we're moving in the right direction. Maybe not fast enough, but I think the more you see people like Larry Fink become active in the debate, you'll start to see other financial leaders, especially younger ones, take on that challenge as well. I think you're you're 100% right. Risk is what drives their business one way or the other. So they have a lot of money at risk. And as investors or those who participate with BlackRock or clients, they have that risk as well. But I think that drives a lot of it. But also, I think you know there is something to be said for skate to where the puck is going, and this is where young money wants to go. Venture capital, David, as you know, has been pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into climate tech and finance. Where's the big money going and who's behind that money? Well, I tell you, it's interesting, Caleb. A lot of that money in 2020 was going into battery storage and battery capacity, the idea, can we build better, longer lasting batteries for the uh, expected electric car revolution? And 
that kind of battery companies are a little bit like the biotech companies of the 1980s and 90s when we were when we were young journalists. They're always working on something really sexy and and you never really see it develop except in a few cases. So, you know, venture, a lot of venture money is in battery companies. There's some good ones out there, at least, you know, that sound like they're doing stuff. They haven't had a great year this year. The money that's going into VC this year has been in um, carbon storage. Companies that are sucking carbon out of the air and storing it in the ground or making products like plastics and stuff from carbon are drawing a lot of money. And it's a little bit confusing to me. I mean, there must be at least three dozen of them I saw on a spreadsheet recently. And they're all getting money from VCs and they're all getting tons of money. And none of them None of them have a product that actually does what they say on the scale needed to deal with climate change. One fund manager told me recently that if you added up all of these carbon companies that the VC money's gone into, and we're trying to to limit the temperature rise in the world to uh, 1.5 or 2%, there's a danger that the way we are going now, it's going to get to 2.7%, which is too hot, will lead to more disasters. But this guy said, if you added up, sucked all the carbon out that these companies say they can do, it would come to less than one-tenth of 1% of what we need to do to to kind of keep to get the temperature lower. But that said, that's where the VC money's going. And, and these guys... They're practiced at throwing money at 20 different companies and hoping one hits big and then they're profitable. So that seems to be the, uh, you know, the play du jour, at least uh, uh, of 2021. What about uh, the, the companies that are funding? Is this the big, you know, Silicon Valley VC firms that we all know about from Internet 1.0 and 2.0, the Anderson Horowitzes and the Sequoias and the Kleiners? Or is this a new crop of venture capital firms that has come to this sector in search of those returns? It is, it is, it is a new crop. You don't see the uh, Kleiners and the Anderson Horowitzes as much in this game as before. A lot, you know, for the most part, they're still kind of doing the old school tech and stuff like that, what we call old school, at least. It's, you know, breakthrough energy ventures, the Bill Gates product, Prelude. There's a bunch of different ones out there that are relatively new and they're smaller funds. You know, they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars or so, maybe billions, but not massive like Kleiner. In large part, they are put together by very wealthy philanthropists, some of them from, you know, Internet Tech 1.0, who made all their money, that are looking to do something in the climate change space. Uh, you know, Bill Gates is a big part of it. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, you know, a lot of these folks are are contributing huge amounts of money to these funds to find the next big thing, whether it be carbon storage or battery storage or electric vehicles uh, or what have you. It's going to be interesting because some of this stuff will stick. When you look at where we were 15 years ago, there was kind of a burst of uh, money poured into what they called then clean tech companies. And for the most part, the, the financial crisis of 2007 and eight blew that out of the water. But some of those companies survived. And there's some of the solar companies that are big now. Well, and electric Tesla was one of them. Sun Power, one of them, big solar company. You know, so even though most people look back on that era as a bust for clean tech, the survivors are doing great. And we will see you could argue that the markets are heading into a, a rough patch. I certainly think they are in 2022. And so we may see a lot of the sheen come off the ESG story because of that. 
And the survivors will be the ones that you want to pick up when those clouds have passed. Which countries, David, are leading the charge in terms of investment, in terms of the growth of these types of firms? Because, you know, we get those of us living in the U.S. get a little U.S. centric when we're looking at, you know, the companies on our stock exchanges or in our in our private markets. But I know this is a global thing and there's money all over the world pouring into some of these solutions. Yeah. You know, regionally, Europe is ahead of everybody. They care more. They're more focused on it. The EU government is way ahead of the U.S. and certainly of of Japan, China, and a lot of Asia in terms of new regulations designed to mitigate global warming and help reduce it. And so not surprisingly, I think you're seeing a lot of the activity in in some of those countries in Europe. They're way ahead in wind power, for instance. Spain's Iberdrola is one big example. Orsted in Denmark is another big example. Vestas Wind Systems also in Denmark, I think. Siemens Energy in Germany. These guys are making huge progress in wind. And they're doing a lot of it in kind of the North Sea and up above in Scandinavia. And as the U.S. begins to move into wind, we're way behind. We've Biden's administration approved two projects this year, one in Massachusetts, one in Rhode Island. You know, as we begin to experiment with wind, wind energy, those European companies are going to get all the contracts. So any kind of fund or any investor that really wants to look and you know, have an international component would want to look to Europe at least for for wind. In solar, I think the U.S. is holding its own a lot better. In electric vehicles, I mean, you can go all over, right? China's got some great companies, uh, NEO, for instance. We've got Tesla here and uh, and all the ones that went public, uh, SPAC or IPO, Rivian, Fisker, Nickel, all those guys. But my gut tells me that if I'm playing the electric vehicle game, I'm betting on the big boys, you know, the guys that know how to make cars. Rivian is going to miss its production uh, goals of a thousand cars by December 31st. And they have plenty of money. They have Amazon money. They got Bezos money. They got all the money in the world. Ford makes a hundred thousand cars a month or something like that, you know. So these guys, Ford, GM, Volkswagen in Germany, they are pumping tons of money into retooling their plants to do electric. You know, they... To me, as an investor, when I see that type of, of money going in, that type of capex, which just says these guys are serious. This isn't just uh, let's go public in a SPAC and see how high we can push our stock. You know, this is this is retooling for a, a new era. Right. And for the legacy automakers, there was no choice. There is no choice. Go electric or go home. And we're talking about 100-year-old companies here who have basically bet the farm and made promises to be all electric in the next 5, 10 to 15 years. So- it was either do it or or fold and fold to Tesla. I wanted to ask you about the Tesla effect because it didn't just get here. Obviously, the company's been around for a while. Elon Musk has been on the scene for quite a while. But the Tesla effect, especially coming out of the last crisis and when Tesla really started to gain some momentum, how big of a watershed moment was that, not just for the EV market, for but for green investing in general, especially given how big that company's gotten? It's a good question, Caleb. And I think Tesla is a really interesting story because I don't think any of the hype and sexiness about Tesla has to do with the fact that it's green energy. It is a cool looking car with a hell of a lot of pickup that drives really well that everybody wants to get. And the fact that it runs on electricity is an added bonus. 
It is a wild stock that sometimes seems to go straight up, that goes down well too, but has made thousands of investors extremely wealthy. It's run by a celebrity CEO, like him or hate him. Everybody listens to everything he says. And so it's a great example of how investors, these companies that are going to be successful are not going to be successful because they're going green. They're going to be successful because they're making cool products and they're going to be successful because they've got hot stocks and, and popular CEOs and then all the reasons that companies have always been successful, right? So, you know, investors who are looking, saying, I want to invest to have an impact and saving the world. That's great. But there is opportunity here to have that impact and get in on the next Amazon or the next uh, Google. So it's really uh, interesting. And Tesla was the first company that showed that, you know, and it's now everybody wants to be Tesla and Tesla's got a huge lead. Not as big as, you know, if you get Ford and GM Volkswagen retooling, they're quickly going to catch Tesla's capacity. But but right now, Tesla's looking like it's in a good spot. For investors in general, especially folks who are kind of new to this or want to get into it, what do you suggest as the the pathway in so they can actually invest along with their environmental conscience or beliefs in the purest way possible? I know that's a really hard question to answer because there are so many funds, index funds and ETFs cloaked in the ESG, SRI, or impact label that may not represent where they want to go. Do they have to go single stock selection or are there easier ways to do this? Well, single stock selection is the more homework, but it is the cleanest way to do it. There's a growing data business tied around these funds that, that will rate them. You know, if you go to Morningstar, you can, you can get ratings of ESG funds and, and those guys do your homework for you. You know, they'll tell you which ones are the, have this impact, which ones have this impact. They'll give you a better idea what's in them, you know, so you can screen out. You know, if you use a screener on, uh, any of the big sites, Fidelity or Vanguard, Morningstar, you can screen out fossil fuels, funds with fossil fuels and stuff like that. So you got to do a little homework. Don't just buy an ESG fund because your broker says you should do it or because that's where your 401k is, you know, and that they're offering an ESG fund. And the performance of these, like you said before, you know, a lot of them are riding the NASDAQ 100. So they're going to be up and down. You know, NASDAQ 100 is having a, a rough couple of weeks now. So there's going to be a clearing out of ESG funds coming in 2022. And the cream will rise to the top. And, and you should be able to find that using very basic stock screeners and fund screeners. It's never been easier, but you do have to do some homework, especially if you want it your way. David, it's hard to predict climate and its economic impacts, but what will be, in your estimation, the dominant themes for investors to focus on in 2022? That's a great question. Well, the electric vehicle revolution is real and uh, everything that goes along with that, from batteries to charging stations, this is real and it's coming. That's going to remain a major theme. I think we're going to start to move a little bit more into places that investors haven't looked before, kind of like food and agriculture. You know, we've had Beyond Meat, for instance, and stuff like that. But I think you're going to start to see more companies tied into that, which is important. Water companies. There's only a few funds that invest in water right now and water security. And they're really interesting because water is going to be a key thing. I'm in here in California, right? And we've, we've just had some rain. So everybody's like doing rain dances and happy. But, you know, we were, we were rationing water most of the year and, and drought conditions. Rivers are running dry. And as that 
goes on globally in Africa, South America, you're going to start to see more migration. Uh, it's all going to be around the water story. So investors who kind of want to get in on where the world is going in global warming should look at the water sector. Right. And I think you're right. That will lead to climate migration. It already has. It will lead to all kinds of natural disasters we haven't banked on. So you have the drought in some areas and you have flooding in others. And that is climate change in the 21st century. David Calloway, the founder of the Calloway Climate Insights Letter. Follow David on social media and check out the Insights Letter on David's Substack. And thank you so much, David Calloway, for joining The Green Investor. So good to have you here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Caleb. It's time for our bi-weekly green fact, that little bit of water cooler knowledge that gives us some insight into the green investing industry. News coverage in the U.S. of climate change reached an all-time high in October and November, according to recent data from the Media and Climate Change Observatory, an international multi-university collaboration based at the University of Colorado Boulder. We can probably thank the COP26 meetings in Scotland back in November for that, since U.S. media coverage was the highest it's been since November and December 2009, when the same annual conference took place in Copenhagen, Denmark. The language of climate change is also changing, according to Miko. More intense words and phrases are being used in the news to describe the phenomenon, such as climate catastrophe and climate emergency. Between 2020 and 2021 alone, the use of the words climate catastrophe in U.S. news outlets increased by half, and in the U.K., use of that term tripled. Meanwhile, the terms global warming and greenhouse effect have been invoked less frequently. At least one outlet, The Guardian, changed its official style guide in 2019, preferring the terms global heating and climate emergency, crisis or breakdown over global warming and climate change. The term climate change, however, is not disappearing. It's just that other terms are increasing, according to Miko. Words matter. Yes, they do. Finally, it's time for This Week in Environmental History. Our chance to look into the past to see how this movement has evolved. We'll take it all the way back to December 31st, 1970, with the passage of the Clean Air Act here in the U.S. On that day, Congress authorized the EPA to set national air quality, auto emission, and anti-pollution standards. The standards led to the production of the catalytic converter in 1973 by New Jersey's Englehart Corporation. In its first 20 years, the EPA says the Clean Air Act prevented more than 200,000 premature deaths by significantly reducing the presence of lead, sulfur dioxide, and other harmful pollutants into the air. 51 years later, and we may see new standards for auto emissions announced into law by the end of this year. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Green Investor. Special thanks to David Calloway of the Calloway Climate Insights Report for joining us. We'll have a full transcript of the show and show notes on the Green Investor page on Investopedia.com. If you like this episode and you're enjoying the show, throw us some holiday love with some stars and review wherever you listen to The Green Investor. From all of us here at Investopedia, have a safe, healthy, and happy holiday season and new year. We'll be back in January with a new episode. Keep it green, and we'll talk to you soon.